the 500-pound gorilla in the room, and here's where I'm going to be indelicate, is the neighborhoods and the three districts that are represented by African Americans are not majority populated by African Americans. And the African American community, and particularly its leadership in the faith community, has to figure out ways to kind of incorporate its neighbors into not so much just the, their faith tradition, but into their community, whether it's providing housing, right. whether it's providing homeless support, whether it's providing support for child development. So there are ways that the African-American church really has an opportunity to kind of have broad shoulders. You're listening to season four of MHD Off the Record. On this episode, we're celebrating Black History Month by discussing the history of Black churches in Los Angeles. We brought in Dr. Lauren S. Foster, an emeritus professor of politics at Pomona College, renowned for his research on race, community, and power with a focus on the African-American experience. His work has particularly explored Black immigration to Los Angeles from 1900 to 1950 and the role of the African-American church in social mobility. Foster's research is influenced by significant historical accounts and has been featured in discussions including PBS panels on the history of the African-American church in Los Angeles. And be sure to stay tuned after the interview for our new segment, Sit Down with the Saffer. Later, we'll hear from CD8 Legislative Deputy Maurice Johnson about the ways our office supports the faith community in the district. Enjoy the show. Welcome to season four of the podcast. We're excited to get off the ground. We're in an amazing new studio. Big ups to our comms team for putting this together. If you're lucky enough to get on the podcast, you'll get to come hang out in our studio and lounge here in the West Adams neighborhood. Today, I'm here with the professor and I'm here with our faith deputy, Maurice Johnson, to talk about the professor's work on the black church. And as folks will know who've been following the podcast, we look a lot at the black migration. We look mm-hmm. at a lot at the formation of the black community. And one of the anchors of the black community is black church. Right. My my father's side, my grandmother who came here, came and was taken in by people that are what's now called a university, Seventh-day Adventist church, mm-hmm. but it was uh, on Wadsworth the, Avenue. Wadsworth Avenue. And before that, it had been on the Forlorn track some years ago. And that history is really, if you look at the history, you can see the history of, of the city. Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, of the city of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Wow. That, so, see, no. see, see. And then, and then another, another part of my family belonged to Second Baptist. Okay. So I wonder, we should just start by saying, what work you've done in a formal way, so you know, advertise your books and all that. Oh, we're going to do that. Right. And then, but then I want to know, what made you interested in it? So I've been working on a book on the African-American church called FCLAP, First Churches Los Angeles Project. And it started out on being on sabbatical and having time to read. And Doug Fleming had wrote a book on L.A. from 1900 to 1950. And I read it, and I said, something's missing. And I read it again, and finally I looked at the index, and he spent four pages on the African American Wow, and wow. And I said, no, th- th- this isn't right. So yeah. I came back with an idea. I said, okay, I'm gonna 
go to each, I had initially identified eight churches and I'm gonna to go to each one of them and I'm gonna ask if I could have access to their ar archives. And five of the eight churches did not have sufficient archives. So the churches that had archival collections or enough material were Fame, Second Baptist, mm -hmm. Wesley Chapel, St. Philip's Episcopal Church, and the People's Independent Church of Christ. And the other three churches, one pastor had come in the mid-80s and just kind of thrown things out, and another church founded in 1907 just didn't kind of valorize its material. And so I said, okay, I'm going to work with the archives. And I also realized, well, maybe there are people left in the community, this was in 2007, 2008, who were in these churches before, 19, before 1950. And I was fortunate enough to identify 65 folk. And one was a woman by the name of Lucy Holmes, who at the time was 102 years old, was wow. a, an old eighth in towner. Wow. And she was just wonderful. Eighth in town, everybody, is uh, the headquarters for the California Eagle. Uh, no, it's not. It's eighth in town. Eighth in town was First Amy Church. Well, that's okay. true. Okay, and so and it was always referred to uh, as Eighth in town and not as First Amy, which is kind of very interesting. But so Lucy Lucy Holmes was kind of the prototype, and uh, another another Eighth in town, Lavonia Scott. Um, but the most compelling interview I had was with this guy who was ninety nine years old. Mm -hmm. His name is Walter Lear Gordon Jr. And Walter was born on June 22nd, 1908 in Santa Monica. He died at 103, nine months and 22 days. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and Walter practiced law for 65 years. Mm. When he came back from graduating from Ohio State Law School, he had his office in Charlotte Bass's in, in the front of the Eagle. Mm -hmm. uh, and she would ask him for crime stories and Tom Griffiths Jr. for uh, civil rights stories. Mm -hmm. And Walter one day gave me this sheaf of paper, it was an autobiography. And I took it home, I read it, so I came back. So he was just a wealth of information because he could walk you down the avenue, mm -hmm. starting at Fifth and Central and take you all the way down to Vernon, okay? And tell you all of the kind of prophetic people like Tom Clay, Thomas Kilt. Kilgore. No, not Kilgore, but Cleghorn, who was the, yeah. the oh. vicar at St. Phillips, mm -hmm. who would walk the streets and kind of go into pool halls and kind of body houses, mm -hmm. and people respected him. So it was the use of archival data right. and the use of uh, oral histories that had been able to flesh this out. And of course, the California Eagle, California New Age, which most folks have not heard of, that was Fred Madison Roberts' newspaper that he ran from 1911 to 1924, and The Liberator, which was Jefferson Lincoln Edmonds, and that ran from 1903 to 1914. So newspapers were great secondary sources, right, but right. people who were in those parish churches themselves kind of provided a rich history. And Walter, in particular, kind of knew everyone in Los Angeles, whether you were lowbrow or highbrow. Mm. And so that kind of gave a real texture because his father and he had a, a route for both the California, for the Chicago Defender and uh, the Crisis Magazine. And so he would walk down the street. And that's how he got to meet the Basses and deliver, you know, the Defender and the Crisis Magazine. And mm -hmm. so. He knew everyone along the avenue as a youngster and then as a lawyer. And so 
that was just a rich experience. And enough said there. Yeah, uh, I could listen uh, to this for a while. Um, so talk about the major sort of the movements that happened here in this in this space. So I know that, uh, and this is something Maurice will be more educated about than me. So there's the Azusa Street Revival. William the Seymour. Yes, yeah. and, then, and then there's the people who came and they already were part of organized yeah. denominations or congregations. Let's parse out and kind of distinguish between formal denominations and the Azusa movement. Let's okay. kind of look to the formal denomination. First DME Church has its origins really in 1849 right. with the arrival of Bob Owens coming to Los Angeles. And two years later, a LDS, a Mormon by the name of Smith, brought 18 enslaved persons from San Bernardino into LA. And Bob Smith's son was besotted with the daughter of one Bridget, Bridget Mason, mm -hmm. who was a midwife. And they went to court and sued. And Judge Boyle granted those 18 enslaved persons their freedom, and the Owens and Mason's family were joined at the hip and were perhaps the most powerful family in LA. Initially, Biddy Mason worshiped at the 4th Street Methodist, Fort, F-O-R-T Street Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. The 4th Street Methodist Church was on Broadway, and that it was called, it was Fort Street at the time. Mm. In 1870, well, we're not sure, between 1869 and 1870, they had a prayer band, and all of a sudden they said, you know, we really want a church that we can call our own. Yeah. You know, And so that was the origins of the first AME church. And, you know, there were less than a thousand people here in Los Angeles in 1870. Eleven years later, another prayer band evolved, and that was the Second Baptist Church. And they were a small group. They met on Requina Street, mm -hmm. again, which is near Azusa. By 1888, the Methodists had organized themselves. So those were the first three formal churches, um, First AME, Second Baptist, and Wesley Chapel. By 1907, the Baptists had metastasized and split, and there were five additional <laughs> yeah. Baptist churches. Uh, and we're still Cork splitting. <laughs> Cornerstone, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Tabernacle, New Hope, and one or two others. Um, in 1904, the Presbyterians organized themselves here as the Westminster Presbyterian Church. And what was interesting about them is they did not locate in what now is the Fashion District or along Central Avenue. They bought a piece of property at 35th and Dinker. Okay? And so, as Walter would say, there was a Negro colony at 35th and Dinker, as mm -hmm. you know, near, mm -hmm. and they eventually moved in 1950 to their present location at 3rd Avenue and Jefferson, which kind of ironic enough was previously the St. Paul Presbyterian Church. Where did the St. Paul Presbyterian Church move to? It moved to the corner of Coliseum and La Brea. And guess mm -hmm. what? St. Paul Presbyterian Church is now majority African-American. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yep. that says something about movement. Yeah. yeah. Wow. wow. I definitely want to kind of jump in here a little bit because it's like I'm amazed at how much growth yeah. we're seeing in the in black churches in L.A. So mm. I'm also curious to know what are some of the roles that they played during this time? Funny you should ask that. Okay, funny mm. you should ask. 
I'm going to start off with an organization called The Forum, which was organized from 1903 mm -hmm. to 1942. And it was organized by Reverend J.E. Edwards, who was mm -hmm. a pastor of Eighth in Town. Fred Madison Roberts, who was a newspaper publisher and the first African-American to sit on the city council. And Jefferson Edmonds, who also was a newspaper writer. And the forum was a nonpartisan group that met initially at the Oddfellows, Oddfellows Hall at Eighth and Wall and then at 1201 Central Avenue. They met at four o'clock, so you could go to church, you could go home and have supper, and it was before seven o'clock church. Uh, no membership fee, anyone could speak. You know, they would bring in Republican politicians, they would bring in reformers. Mm -hmm. And so this was an example of kind of community activity. Yeah. The second organization I'll touch on is the Good Samaritan Benevolent Society. And what Good Samaritan did was, if you were a member of Second Baptist Church, you could join the Benevolent Society. But the councilman, uh, in order to join the Benevolent Society, you have to be a member of the church, mm -hmm. and then you have to become obligated. And how is one obligated? One is obligated when members of the obligation committee come and make a house call. And so they want to make sure that there's no alcohol in the house, right. that you're neat and clean. Make sure you're living right. Yeah, that, that, that you are of good character. That's right. Okay? And the Good Samaritan Benevolent Society existed continuously from 1906 to 1957. They paid dividends. They paid. If you were sick, you received a $2 a week uh, sick benefit. At death, you got a $25 death benefit. Um, some people today would say that that was very intrusive, but what the church was doing was helping rural African Americans right. to become acclimated to life mm -hmm. in the city. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a good point. Can I just bring yeah. in now? My turn to break in. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering, um, Maurice and Council Member, if either of you, uh, and I know the church work that you all do now, mm -hmm. can you draw any parallels to what he's talking about in terms of? obligations or help well, rural African-Americans. You know, it's interesting, the um, the Benevolent Society. Uh, so years ago, I think this was before Maurice started, I'm attending um, E.V. Hill's church. What okay. is it? Mount Zion. Mount Zion. And, uh, you know, he preaches. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that it's church is... E.V. Hill. Yeah, no, yeah that, that, church is, that church is a little bit right-wing, right? Yeah. Well, E.V. was right-wing. E.V. was right-wing. Well, e. right mm -hmm. But this is, post, this is after he's passed away. Okay. And uh, so, you know, the sermon was a little uncomfortable. Uh, and at the end of service, something that I hadn't seen since I was a little kid, mm -hmm. the after the altar call and all this, the pastor gets up and says, all right, who in the congregation doesn't have $5 in their bank account? And people raise their hand. And they would say, okay, who's going to give this lady $50? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And somebody would raise their hand to mm -hmm. give this lady $50. Who doesn't have a ride home? Who has to take the bus home? Mm -hmm. People raise their hand. Okay, who's... And, like, no one left the that service... Without being taken care of. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. okay. And and we and everybody stopped. Like, nobody got up and left during no, that no. section. Like, and it and it was separate from the offering. No. Uh, but I it, but it was a throw... It felt like a throwback. It, it, to was, the a, way it was a throwback. Yeah. And then yeah. the most uh, current piece of research that I have... Uh, began in 1935. Um, People's, People's Independent Church broke off from First AMA in 1950. 
um, over who was going to get appointed uh, to be the pastor. The existing pastor they were happy with, and the bishop said no, and so 250 members left. So let me stop you there. So United Church of Christ yeah. is one of the more progressive right. denominations. Yeah. Uh, did that have anything to do with the split that, that they chose that denomination to go to, or was it just no, they, that? Was they were non-denominational. Oh, okay. Were, okay. No, no, no. Oh, got it. Okay. People's Independent They weren't Church. in United Church no, Christ. No, no, okay. no. They're, they're, they're not UCC. That was Lincoln mm -hmm. Memorial. Mm -hmm. But so mm -hmm. they took Napoleon Greggs as their pastor, and there was a youngster that was born in 1910, and I've got a picture of him, along with Alan Spencer, who was an opera singer over in Boyle Heights, and the young man was Clayton Donovan Russell. And when Clayton Russell was brought back to Peoples in 1925, and what he did, he's a young dynamic pastor, just been in Denmark, and okay. So when the war breaks out, he organizes the Negro Victory Committee and just says it's coming and has a mass meeting at Second Baptist Church. And the new pastor there, um, J. Raymond Henderson, I think, was kind of shocked. But Charlotte Bass was a good friend. And what they did, the Negro Victory Committee petitioned the city of Los Angeles, and they almost went on strike, to get Negro motormen and bus drivers. Mm -hmm. uh, they got a training school at both Jefferson and Roosevelt to train African-American and Latinos to work in the war industry. Then in April of 42, he opens up the Negro Victory Market. He opens up four markets. They last for throughout the war. In 1944, what does he do? He runs for city council from the 8th Congressional, from the 8th Councilmanic <laughs> District. Just, just throwing that out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a year, two years later, Charlotte Bass. So, you know, Clayton Russell was a dynamic, charismatic leader, and also in 1940, he did something else very interesting. He went on the radio. Bishop Crouch, who had been a Church of God in Christ person, mm -hmm. had been the first African-American on the radio. Uh, Clayton Russell got in a riff with Amy Semple McPherson over Langston Hughes. Wow, so, wow. No, no, no. So, so, no, he was the progressive pastor, mm -hmm. okay? And you see the independent living quarters. That was his idea. He eventually left that left the church in 1953 because they just churches metastasized and split. Yeah. And what you see is the independent homes there. That was the first kind of senior li living facility wow. created for African Americans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So these are three organizations: Good Samaritan Benevolent Society. Mm -hmm the Forum and the Negro Victory Committee. And what they did is set the template for what we think of in terms of African-Americans in politics today. If you think about in the 60s, Thomas Kilgore, H.H. H. Brookings, and then in the 90s, Chip Murray, and I should mention Douglas Farrell as well, because Douglas Farrell represented Watts in the assembly from 66 to 63. So, you know, it's it's African-American pastors and churches as civic leaders, yeah. but it's also African-American pastors all of a sudden becoming very involved in politics in electoral ways. 
The, um, one of the fascinating things about the church, the black church, to me, is the role of women. So I, you know, I, I, I always grew up hearing, you know, churches, in churches, uh, two-thirds of the people are women. They give 80% of the money, and they do 95% of the work, and then they stand up a man to represent the congregation as the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm just I, interested to hear your take I, on I, that. I, I will be delicate yeah. in my response to that. Okay. And I will give you an example. Uh, I teach a class every month during the school year for the Baptist, the Black mm-hmm. History class at Second Baptist. And so this year, well, what are you going to do? So I said, okay, I'm going to do something different. And so, you know, you know, we've done all our kind of seminal males and, you know, things of that nature. So I said, I'm going to look at women. So mm. I started off with Diane Nash. I then went to Satima Clark. Okay. I then went to Ms. Rosa Park. And then I went to, um, oh, God, come on, I'm having a blank. Not right now. Um, Merle Evers? No, no, Merle's a good friend. Um, Shaw, the, she went to Shaw. Uh, Ella Baker. Mm. And this week... And Carolina Best. This week I'm doing, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But what's interesting, and I, I was thinking about this, because all of the previous ones, Diane Nash, Ella Baker, Septima Clark, everyone except for Mrs. Parks was college educated. Mm-hmm. And Fannie Lou Hamer is the rural person... The person with the least the, the least formal education, but street smarts, and yeah. and the African American church. Yeah, she right was most rooted in the church of all well, those people too. No, they, no, that 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 I would disagree. Well, with. let's see. Ella Baker well, was Ella, Baker. Ella okay. Baker and Septima Clark were very rooted in the church. But, uh, but Fannie Lou Hamer was a church lady. <laughs> they all were church ladies in different ways. <laughs> Uh, Ella Baker's Septima Clark were very. Ella Baker was a very devout Baptist, and she fought with Martin King. Well, she fought particularly with Ralph Abernathy, mm-hmm. who just thought women should not have any place in SCLC or anywhere else. And you know, and with regard to Mrs. Parks, Mrs. Parks goes to her first NAACP meeting with Edie Nixon. And they say to her, oh, you know, you're our secretary. And what's interesting about all these women, except for Ella Baker, they eventually went to the Highlander Folk School, mm-hmm. which was Miles Horton. Yeah. And this was, this was a place in, w- where progressives, both labor and racial progressives, and feminists were trained, okay? At a time when there was no other place to go, particularly in the South. Okay, you know, this was H.J. Musty and, uh, as I said, Miles Horton. And so this is a very kind of interesting role. But the women, the women were the backbone of the civil rights movement. And the women are, to this day, the women are the backbone of most church organizations. but, But leadership, that's another story. All right. He said he was going to be delicate, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, uh, talk to us about, you know, one of the dynamics in, in, as a councilman of the 8th district, one mm-hmm. of the things you, it's obvious, but it's not obvious, you know, the biggest single landowner 
in the 8th District. This is the University of Southern California. No. It is Crenshaw Christian Center. Okay. They're the big, because the, the University of Southern California's holdings are actually not in the district. Okay. So, but collectively, the biggest category of landowners is the black church by far. Yeah. Okay. Black church owns more than any commercial no, interest. No. What you find, especially now that the church is changing form, is that you see churches trying to use their, leverage their land to either stave off their demise or set a foundation for which they can grow. Uh, and so we were just at a church, a historic church, Southside, Southside Bethel, okay. which, you know, Southside Bethel started off in Watts right. and then moved into th their San Pedro near Century. Mm -hmm. uh, they're building a new sanctuary with four stories of housing on the top. Okay. No, uh, I, senior I, housing. I, I, this is a delicate issue. Oh, this delicate too. Oh my goodness. No, no, no. Not not so much delicate for me, but I think delicate for, for you. Yeah. For you. Yeah. And so I, I don't want to say anything to kind well, of you say I'm I'm <laughs> they can tell the difference between your voice and mine. No. Just, you, know, <laughs> you already started talking about the communist Highlands and Highlander Center. I didn't say nothing. but you were the chair of the housing committee. So uh, you know, for the council. Yes, right? for, okay. I was chair of the homelessness committee. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, uh, faith communities have large holdings, mm -hmm. and they are attempting to figure out how to kind of leverage those yeah. holdings. Yes. And this includes the three council districts that tend to have the largest number of African-Americans, the 8th, 9th, and 10th district. So the councilman is not alone in kind of facing his, his other colleagues face this as well. Mm -hmm. You know, finding ways to house displaced people, mm -hmm. figuring out ways to, as you say, stave off financial demise and grow is a very difficult issue. And then the 500 pound gorilla in the room, and here's where I'm gonna be indelicate, is the neighborhoods and the three districts that are represented by African-Americans are not majority populated by African-Americans. And the African-American community, and particularly its leadership in the faith community, has to figure out ways to kind of incorporate its neighbors into not so much just the, the, their faith tradition, but into their community, whether it's providing housing, right. whether it's providing homeless support, whether it's providing support for child development. So there are ways that the African-American church really has an opportunity to kind of have broad shoulders and become community partners in ways that they haven't thought of. And I think that goes back to uh, what we talked about earlier about the role of the black church. Mm -hmm. As I think, you know, I've been in church my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen uh, so much in the church um, as a pastor's kid, as well mm -hmm. as just seeing um, as a kid, the mm -hmm. role that it's been in just mm -hmm. providing resources, mm -hmm. programming from kids all the way up to mm -hmm. elderly. Mm -hmm. um, and so to that point, to the council member's point, um, Southside's not the only church that just has this abundance of land that they've sat on for so many years mm -hmm. um, you know part of the council members work that we do is trying to navigate between uh, or trying to navigate churches with the government because there's mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. um, uh, permitting and mm -hmm. sort of bureaucracy mm -hmm. that they have mm -hmm. to go mm -hmm. through to right. even just get something or even just learn how the process right. works right. and so there's so many uh, churches in South LA uh, my dad had a church on uh, 
54th and Western mm -hmm. as a kid before we moved to Compton. And so um, I can recall as a kid just seeing like, there's a term now that kids use like buy back the block or buy mm. the block. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that is- Church already owns the block. Yeah, they own the block. They've owned the block for years. Yeah, 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 They own houses yeah, 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 and yeah. Um, these buildings that they would mm. use for kids to have mm. after school programming. Right. Um, and so I've seen that, you know, all my years of being involved uh, in the black church. The African-American church in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and they, but particularly in, in Los Angeles, has to reimagine itself. Sure. And by reimagine itself, I mean that at times they need to think about sharing their space yeah. with Latino or various Asian congregants. They need to think about ways to uh, either provide childcare or elder care or, or the potential for developing housing for displaced persons. You talked about reimagining, and so I'm very curious as, you, as to your thoughts about uh, the black church, and I'm gonna set something there and then I'm gonna bring up a red herring. I think it's a red herring okay. for, you to, for you to take a look at. One of the things I was concerned about going into the pandemic mm -hmm. was when I went into the churches in my district, mm -hmm. and, you know, I got more black churches than anybody. Right. Although right. I have right. all the denominations yeah. here, have multiple yeah. congregations. Uh, you hardly see any young people. You hardly see anyone under 45. No. Definitely no babies mm -hmm. or, or children running around. And whether some churches were full, a lot were not full. But the point is that demographic looked the same. It was aging and, and graying. Uh, and I was really concerned about wait, what's going to happen here. Post-pandemic, you have the same issue, except the audience is much smaller. Now, everywhere it's much smaller. 40% of congregations have shuttered after COVID. That's wow. 40. I didn't know that number. Okay. That's no, huge. no, the number. We're doing good then. <laughs> no, no, the number is humongous. Okay, mm -hmm. so that, that let's put a pin in that. So 40% of churches, Protestant churches, have shuttered. Um, now, there are other factors that play into this as mm -hmm. well. One is, I mentioned Clayton Russell and Bishop Crouch in the 30s and 40s going, right. on, going on the radio. Now... Churches that are surviving or thriving. And I just want to do a pitch for my people. In Los Angeles, Los Angeles perfected that with Fred Casey Price. Yeah, Fred Price like he, was Fred Price was he the was first. the pinnacle. He was he was he was the first. He yeah. clearly was the first and, and the apex. But now you have live streaming. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah, people right. attend Bedside Baptist. You can go. <laughs> that's right. Okay. You, you, you can watch a live stream from Atlanta mm -hmm. or from Multiple Le churches. Orlando, yeah. Maryland. Yeah. Uh, and not go to church. Mm -hmm. then, then add. So that, that's part of it. The other piece is the demographics mentioning under 40, you know, millennials and younger. Um, their lives have changed. As, as a youngster, my Sunday was clearly defined. You get up with your dad, you shine your shoes, clean the car, you go to Sunday school, come get your mom, yeah, uh, and come home. And there was pound cake, and my dad would have to sneak off to Wrigley Field if he wanted to drink beer with his uncle because you didn't mm -hmm. have alcohol in the house. Mm -hmm. And supper was at 2 o'clock, and that was it. Okay? And now you've got youth, youth sports. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so parents are shuttling their kids to an array of activities. Mm -hmm. um, you have families that have kind of split faith traditions. And so, you know, kind of that notion of church 
being kind of that, that, that kind of space if you're an Adventist on Saturday or if you are a mainline Christian on Sunday, mm -hmm. that's all changed. I'm going to put the, the pinnacle for that is I mentioned the Good Samaritan Benevolent Society and being obligated. What changed church attendance and per person's personal habits? I'm going to tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. You're never going to guess. It's the drive. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm okay. totally with that. I totally okay. understand okay. that. Totally understand that. You, the drive. I'm looking perplexed. Okay, you're looking <laughs> perplexed. Mm -hmm. No. If you put your laundry out on a Sunday, you'd be the scourge of your neighborhood. Okay? Nobody would ever talk to you again in life. Okay? You know, your neighbors would think that you are the worst. You are the most satanic, terrible person that God ever created. And the dryer, I mean, you could actually do your wash and dryer on Sunday. Okay? And nobody saw it. And so if you didn't get in your car and go to church, nobody knew the difference. Okay? You know, but before the dryer... You know, heaven forbid that you would actually do wash on Sunday. Was it because it was labor at all, or? Well, you could, you couldn't. Any activity you did was, by definition, a community activity. That's what it means. Like, so when you do laundry, mm -hmm. everybody knows you're doing laundry because you have to put your clothes out. And if we don't work on Sundays and we go to church and you're putting out laundry, then you're breaking the rules and everybody knows it. Yeah. Now nobody knows when mm -hmm. you do laundry. Right. Because you have, we have a greater degree of privacy because no. of technology. No. As I said, when I was a youngster, my dad and his uncle would go to Wrigley Field, a baseball game, because they couldn't have alcohol in the house on Sunday. And now, does anybody worry about mm. somebody having a glass of wine or a beer? No, these people go to... A wine, a mimosa brunch after service. <laughs> after service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Directly after you're going to right from service, meeting friends. That's right. Mimosas. To yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's wild. It's a lot to handle now. I wanted, just, uh, I wanted to ask a question because we were talking about church attendance, but we were also talking about the well, church attendance and who goes to church, mm -hmm. but also we were talking about the role the church has played in both my life and your life as mm -hmm. well, Maurice. Growing up, and we're millennials, right? Mm -hmm. And growing up, I'm a child of the 90s, mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of after school programs were cut, mm -hmm. a lot of summer programs were cut, mm -hmm. and the church was the space mm -hmm. that we went to, right? Mm -hmm. We had vacation Bible school, right. they had the programs after school, mm -hmm. they had choir, they had all these things, and we were very involved in church. And mm -hmm. on Sundays, like you were describing Sunday, we were we didn't get to go home. You were at Sunday, you were at church all day. All day. All you day. had morning service, mm -hmm. Sunday school, mm -hmm. Sunday service. Then it was like you get something to eat, mm -hmm. come back come for back to, night yeah. service, <laughs> right? And that's rehearsal if you did all day. For night service. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say that there was yeah. rehearsal for night service, or you had to go to another church, sing, and then come back <laughs> to, your, to your church. So we were very involved. But now, as a millennial, I never go to church, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But also, I was just thinking, how does the, you know, as the church also has kind of shifted its role in a sense? Because if you look at it historically, mm -hmm. it was a space of freedom. It was the only place we could go to celebrate mm -hmm. during slavery. Mm -hmm. It was also a space to organize throughout slavery, before our abolition, and then you know, moving forward. Civil rights, you talked about the, the time during the migration west mm -hmm. and the, the impact and the role the church had there. And I talked about just now the 90s even and how that the role the church had there, supplementing the things that honestly government failed on as far as the black community, right? And now I'm looking at it today, what role 
does the church play today? Like what significant role can the church play? Does it need to change? Does it need to shift? The church has to change and it has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, the largest kind of example would be Rick Warren and Saddleback Church. Uh, they are, they were nominally Southern Baptists. Uh, they started off as a very small community, but they built programs. And one of my colleagues took her class to visit, and they had a guide. And uh, you know, during the service, ninety-seven percent of the audience were white. And my professor friend said, "You have African Americans and Latinos." Mm -hmm. And the response it was, yes, we have a Latino tent, we have a Korean tent. Uh -huh. And it's kind of like, wait a minute. You're kind of, you know, they're part of this larger kind of faith community, but but they kind of engaged in affinity politics. Mm -hmm. uh, affinity, uh, not just Freudian, uh, affinity worship. And, you know, it, it worked for them. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at large, African-American megachurches, and I'm thinking one in Atlanta and another in the Maryland area, uh, churches with 10,000 congregants coming. They're coming because of multiple activities that yeah. they could kind of drop the kids off. That's right. And the last piece I, I, I want to put into this is W.E.B. Du Bois wrote an article called Amusement in 1897, and he was just starting to, to work on Philadelphia Negro. And he looks at the church as a form of amusement. It's singing. It's call and response. It's entertainment. Okay, church was your church and the barbershop or beauty, beauty parlor until probably the early 70s was your principal source of information about your community. Okay? Yeah. And so, you know, that's where you got your information. And now, you know, folk who are still have a faith tradition have kind of migrated to some of these larger spaces mm -hmm. because they can they can feel wanted. They can have entertainment, mm -hmm. amusement, uh, they can receive kind of a faith tradition and it's kind of it's compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer you kind of walk to, to Sunday school and your folks come and, and collect you and you go into church together. Or your drive is 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to mm -hmm. get to church. Okay? The, the, uh, you raise a, a point that I uh, have been trying to get my head around and figure out how to interact with. So that I feel like there's traditional black churches where their main role and their main function in the community is a leader in civic and political life, life right, right? Mm -hmm. and so you can still go there and you find yeah. out who's who yeah. the politician might stop by yeah. when the governor's in town yeah. the governor's going to go there and they tell you what's happening and what to look out for and covid shots and mm -hmm. all the rest right and so there's a set of churches that still do that but then there's a set of black churches that have so we're not doing that, we're doing black culture. Mm -hmm. So we're doing the music and the dancing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, yeah, no. some of these churches, like the band is better, like no, no. the band is better than what you're gonna see at the House of Blues. Yeah, yeah, no. and, right. and, yeah. and there's dancing yeah, yeah. and there's a show and 
there's camera you know there's i was at a church the other week i'm not gonna name a church where a camera a crane you know a guy on a camera came <laughs> swung by my face while i was singing and it was yeah. it's it was it's a whole show yeah. and I, I just kind of don't know how to relate to that or what no, that it, does it, as i said in 1897 you know the boys talked about the church as being a source of abuse Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then it was kind of call and response and singing corporate hymns or having a soloist or having a preacher who was very charismatic from the pulpit and the call and response. That's now passe. It is now, it's entertainment live. Yeah. Okay. The music, sound system, yeah. the integration mm-hmm. of dance, vocal, instrumental, spoken word. So in essence, what some churches have done is they are keeping up with the secular world. Yeah, that's right. With a spiritual experience. I think that's right. And how I look at it is like, there's like this spectrum of churches, right? So mm. for my generation, you have the larger churches who can do that. Mm. You have the cranes, you have cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's this really engaging experience. Mm-hmm. But then there's and also- you can see yourself on the screen. You can see yourself there's on that. two big screens. Right. Yeah. City, yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, but then you also have, which are majority of the churches in, the mm-hmm. in um, I think in South LA, of the smaller churches who don't have capacity to oh, do that. Right. So I think that's, becomes a challenge of young people who don't necessarily want that experience of like mm-hmm. a small Baptist church in the crevice, you know, mm-hmm. of the streets. Mm-hmm. And storefront. yeah, a storefront church, there's mm-hmm. about between seven and 12 members. Mm-hmm. Um, there's maybe an, uh, an older style organist. Mm-hmm. There's maybe uh, a drummer who's been playing for however many years. Don't and so you have that Billy difference. Don't besmirch Billy Preston. Sure, sure. So there's that challenge, you know, I think of what younger people want yeah. of having that experience. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and, and there's a challenge between, you know, unfortunately there are churches who just aren't unable to meet the times and change the context and have this new experience that we're looking for. Well, as I said earlier, all parishes, all congregations mm-hmm. have to reimagine. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You, you cannot you cannot do things the way you did them pre-2020. Yeah. And you clearly can't do things the way you did them in 1995. Mm-hmm. Okay, the world is turned upside down mm-hmm. and, and, and technology is the engine that's driving mm-hmm. a lot of it. Yeah. And then add to that the whole social media connection. Mm-hmm. You know, churches now have Instagram feeds, <laughs> they have a Facebook page, mm-hmm. they're on X. And so, you know, yeah. there are multiple ways mm-hmm. that you have communication with people in, in your particular fellowship. Yeah, I think overall what I appreciate about the church, uh, and this is from me growing up to now, mm-hmm. um, as historically what we see is mm-hmm. the church has always filled in the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I give you an example. Uh, you know, I look at COVID, though mm-hmm. there are a lot, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. a lot of churches struggled, mm-hmm. um, but even the ones that struggled still were able to somehow be a resource to the people, mm-hmm. whether it was food mm-hmm. drives or food grocery mm-hmm. giveaways, yeah. COVID masks or COVID mm-hmm. tests. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we saw that a lot in the pandemic, though mm-hmm. there was a lot of challenges yeah. with it. We saw yeah. that regardless of whatever yeah. a natural disaster yeah. or a challenge that we face, you know, as people, mm-hmm. the church has always been there to, to kind of step in that gap for the community. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're I'm getting the signal that we got to wrap up because uh, we could stay here all day. Yeah. Uh, we want to get you uh, back on the back on the road because we're getting close to time. 
Uh, but we do lightning round uh, every uh, episode, and we try to hit you with questions. We're keeping a list of what all of our guests say. Uh, so we're going to begin your lightning round. You ready? I'm ready. You ready for the lightning round? All right. First one, we're going to go deep early. Historical black church that every Angelino should visit. I'm going to say two. No, it's only one. No, it's got to be two. It's got to be two. Okay, you have to attend the two oldest African American churches in the mm-hmm. city. First, first AME and Gee. second. But no, that's not cheap. You got to pick. You got to pick. No, I'm not. No, I'm not going there. Right. The Baptist between the Baptists and the Methodists. You got to pick. The Baptists and the AMEs. I'm not going to pick. I'm not going. No way. All right, all right. Let's see if you. Let's see if you do this one. The uh, writer or scholar from South LA that has had the biggest impact on you? That's easy. Ralph Johnson Bunch. That was very good. Jefferson High School, I like it. All right. And then your favorite song that represents our community? Tanya. Dexter Gordon on One Flight Up. Wow. Okay. All right. right. A manual arts graduate. That's right. Yes, that's right. right. Dexter Gordon. Okay. 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 Nice. Okay. Then you want to do Lester Young and Lee Young, or do you want to do... he's trying to do multiple ones. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we heard that church, though. You heard the church? He said Second Baptist and First Amy because yeah, he didn't mm-hmm. want to talk, speech, pick between them <laughs> because they both have significant history yes. yeah, yeah. and are a special part of the story mm-hmm. of South L.A. Well, thank you, um, thank you Professor, Council. for thank, being thank you, with us. Uh, we really fun, appreciate it. Fun, fun afternoon. Yes. No, we're going. this is one for the books. Uh, <laughs> okay. and, and don't be surprised if you hear from us again because okay. Uh, okay. we're doing a lot of things and, and want to put together history because... The one of my biggest fears about how to seeing how our community moves mm-hmm. is people moving out of context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of our most popular churches, and I know I'm going to get in trouble naming a congregation, but one of our most popular churches for millennials. Mm-hmm. I wa- I go there and I wonder, do you guys know how you got here? Mm-hmm. You know, because you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're on. Not in the neighborhood, no, is what I, I say. I'm just going to say, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to get you out of this. Okay. <laughs> Shelley versus Kramer, 1948, doing away with restricted covenants. Okay? Mm. So all of a sudden, uh, there's no restriction on where mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. buy a home, yeah. mm-hmm. which has allowed people to end up in places that they right. weren't so, before. So one of our fastest growing, most full churches is also in the same neighborhood that has the most nightclubs. And it's not our neighborhood. Not surprising. Why not surprising? I mentioned amusement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I just wonder, because, you know, I, I, I always feel like groups of people, especially, you know, they'll go, they'll bounce about, but they mm-hmm. get back to center. Mm-hmm. Right. They get back to the anchor. And I'm just looking, I'm like, how are you guys going to get back to the anchor? The anchor has, if I can for a couple of minutes, the anchor began to devolve in 1965 after the insurrection. Mm. African-Americans moved to Pomona, they moved to Altadena and Pasadena, and they moved to Carson. And then Mm. post-92, African-Americans found their way to the IE, particularly to Moreno Valley, Fontana, and Ontario. So, and, and, and also to Lancaster and Palmdale. So the migration of African-Americans within the six-county L.A. area 
has really been ongoing for the past 60 years, but nobody paid attention to it because we always assume that the core of the African-American community is South Central. Mm -hmm. And we are sitting here uh, and we're sitting across the street from a very historic building that was constructed in 1949 for a company that got organized in 1924. That company doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. People in your generation would not, if I mention the name of that company, would not know why it is important. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay? So things change, and we have to be mindful of those changes. But, yeah. but they change, and the, the organization he's talking about is Golden State Mutual Life, which is one right. of the biggest insurance companies, certainly black insurance companies mm -hmm. in the country. Norman O. Houston was mm -hmm. one of the founders. Norman O. Houston Park is there on Stockton mm -hmm. and La Brea. That's right. Uh, but, you know, so we have, I've just, one of these things I've gone through in council is we're trying to do historic landmarks as traditional black congregations. So, you know, you have the Venice yeah. First Baptist. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the LA African American Historical Panel. So, you, so you know this. And <laughs> no, then we're got, having a meeting about this on Monday. And then, good. And then, and then we've got, see, because you talk about people moving around, then we got the, we've got a couple congregations in Pacoima. Right. You know, the Brodus family yeah, out yeah, there yeah. that, that thing's going out, and as well as Pomona. And so... Are you reading my email, sir? I'm not reading your email. <laughs> I'm reading my email. Okay, are you and reading I, and, my email? And I attend Baptist <laughs> Ministers Conference, so yeah, I, okay. I, I hear about yeah, all this okay. stuff. And so I just wonder what happens uh, to our history. I just, you know, it just seems like you got to... I, I get people move around and locate, but it just feels like you always got to have a base. Yeah. As a politician, that's... Politicians think in terms of base. Yeah. So... We can do whatever, you know, I can do some cool stuff on traffic safety or the mm -hmm. environment, but my base is civil rights and equity. Right. Like right. that's, yeah. that's that, where that, I that's live. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I can go over there, but I'm, this is where I'm going to come this, back. This, no, yeah. No, that's no, the anchor. No, no. And uh, so that's what I wonder about with these can institutions. Can I tell you a quick story? Sure. Um, my, the president of the college where I teach is an African-American woman. And when she arrived in July of 2017, her admin called and said, will you have lunch with him? And I said, yes. And so we were going out to lunch. And as we're walking out of her office, she says to me, my husband wants to know, where do you get your haircut? And my response is, I get my haircut and my faith in LA. Mm. And because I live in Claremont, and she kind of dropped her jaw a little bit, but she didn't realize that I'm centered here. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Even though I yes. live 30 yes. miles mm -hmm. to the east. Mm -hmm. I'm centered here. And so, you know, you're right, but it's hard to, it, with the transitions and the movements from 65 and 92, uh, families who we would think of as being Angelinos now look at themselves as Palmdaleites mm -hmm. or, or Inland Empire. Or Inland Empire folk, okay, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't realize, okay, their roots are really here yeah all right we're gonna wrap it up because i could go on all night uh but we, we want to thank the professor emeritus for being with us and yeah. all of our guests in, including uh, maurice and siobhan and Rhonda. uh great discussion you will hear more on this uh from us uh so stay tuned and thank you for being with us off the record I know you enjoyed that enlightening interview with Pomona College professor, Dr. Lauren Foster, but we aren't finished yet. 
We will have our staffers sit down with Legislative Deputy Maurice Johnson, who will speak with us about the ways our council office supports the faith community in the 8th District. But before we get to that, here are a few community announcements. Registration has begun for co-ed baseball and girls softball leagues at our local recreation centers, including Van Ness, Algin Sutton, Lauren Miller, Jackie Tatum Harvard, and many other parks. Youth ages 5 through 15 are invited to participate for just $10 per child. Youth with disabilities are also welcome to participate as reasonable accommodations will be made with prior arrangements. Fee waivers are available, just ask park staff for details. For more information, visit laparks.org or visit your local parks recreation center. Are you looking for a place to get affordable fresh produce? Food Access LA brings us the Crenshaw Farmer's Market. Every Saturday, the Crenshaw Farmer's Market features regional farmers and artisan vendors who bring a diverse selection of local produce, as well as sprouts, breads, nuts, baked goods, and delicious prepared foods. The market also hosts monthly events, including cooking demonstrations, tastings, and children's activities. At Crenshaw Farmer's Market, you can use your CalFresh EBT card and WIC checks. Additionally, they offer Market Match, which doubles CalFresh up to $30 per day. Stop by the information booth to receive your extra dollars to spend at the market. The Crenshaw Farmer's Market is open every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., rain or shine, and is located in the historic Fire Station 54 parking lot at 5730 Crenshaw Boulevard off of Crenshaw and Slauson. Hyde Park Miriam Matthews Branch Library is inviting you to join them for their Miriam's Garden Monthly Poetry Reading Series, which takes place every fourth Saturday. This month, sit in the garden and listen to the readings of Allegra Parks, Brian Dunlap, and Juan Amador. Check it out Saturday, February 24th at 2 p.m. Again, that's Hyde Park Miriam Matthews Branch Library, located on the corner of Florence and Van Ness at 2205 West Florence Avenue. For more information, visit lapl.org or call 323-750-7241. Now it's time to sit down with the staffer. Here, we talk with the CD8 staff member to learn a little bit more about the work we do to support our constituents, community organizations, small businesses, and other vital institutions in our district. For this segment, we sit down with Maurice Johnson, Legislative Deputy for Council President Pro Tempore Marquise Harris-Dawson. As a member of the legislative team, he assists in the development and facilitation of the council members' main policy priorities, in addition to working on jobs and workforce development and as liaison to CD8's faith community. So, Maurice, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's good to be here. And I'm sure listeners are very interested in learning more about the ways that our office supports the faith-based institutions in our district. Right. And you're a ledge deputy, but you specifically, in addition to your other work, mm-hmm. you do specifically do work with faith-based institutions in our district. Can you I talk do. a little bit about that work? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, the councilman asked me to be the faith deputy. And so primarily my role uh, is to, one, make sure that the council member has a strong presence within the faith community. You know, historically, we know that the faith community and churches have been a backbone, one, in sort of being that resource for 
constituents, for residents, for the community. And so the councilman wants to make sure that he has a strong presence in those community. The other piece is that sometimes it gets really hard to navigate bureaucracy. And so part of the work that I do is to make sure that if there's anything that our churches need, our faith-based institutions, that the council member is available to help them, whether that be housing or if they need assistance with trying to navigate City Hall, et cetera. It's really important for him to make sure that there's a strong relationship between him and the folks out in the district who belong to a faith-based institution or the pastors or the ministry leaders or the faith leaders. And why is it important that our local officials support faith-based institutions? And why is it important specifically for our district, CD8? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that, you know, as I mentioned before, historically, a lot of organizing, a lot of activism happened in the church. You know, when we look at the 60s to 70s, everyone went to the church for everything, right? You needed food, you go to the church. You needed clothes, you go to the church. There was some sort of natural disaster happening. The church was always there to fill the gap. And so that's something that I believe reigns true today, where the church has been such a strong resource for programming for kids up to elders. And so I think it's very, very important that there is a really strong rapport and a relationship between government, between the elected officials and the church, because it's important for them to work together in tandem because they're serving the same purpose, which is the people. And that's an interesting point that you bring up, because mm-hmm. I think about the ways that faith based institutions or my church specifically supported me and my family right. growing up. And, and we grew up very, very poor. Low income. Mm -hmm. I'm from District 8. I grew up in CD8. I went to Manual Arts High School. I've lived pretty much here my entire life. And, you know, it's there's a lot that we needed. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, I grew up. My dad was in school. He was he was going through a lot. And so the way that a single parent who was low income and trying to figure it out was able to get resources was to go to our local church. Right, right. And I know that still reigns true today. And in fact, I remember you speaking to me yesterday. You talked about the ways that many of the churches came through during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the work that some of these churches did during the pandemic and the ways that we have supported them? Sure. Um, So I think one of the things that we saw uh, in the pandemic, particularly in 2020, 2021, um, when it was very strong, we had to stay at home order and folks couldn't leave. We started to see a lot of the disparities that folks, particularly in South LA and CD8, were having to endure. Folks needed clothes. Folks needed food. Folks needed PP equipment, masks, and hand sanitizers. And what we saw is that a lot of our churches, even the smaller churches to the larger size churches, they filled in that gap. And so I recall working from home and seeing some of the churches that I'm familiar with in the district, because my dad's a pastor as well in Compton, but we used to be over here on 54th and Western in the district for 12, 15 years or so. And I will start to see the church really stand in the gap and provide so many different resources for folks that were in need. If you needed resources on housing, they were there. Churches started to do these like grocery giveaways where every Saturday, every Friday, folks can go and just get bags of groceries. And you'd be surprised like how helpful and needed that that is for folks who just have food on the table to feed their families and their children. And so I think the church has been one of the most vital institutions that have provided that. Awesome. And I know that our office, well, not just our office, but the city, mm-hmm. we do some recognition to support and celebrate our clergy members. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the work that we do there. Sure. So a few things that we've done recently, this past October was National Clergy Appreciation Month. So what the Council President Pro Tem Harris Dawson did was 
we did a council presentation where we invited clergy from our district as well as we put the um, invitation out to other members to bring in faith leaders in their communities who have just done great work in the community, who've been on the front lines for years. We invited them to council just to say thank you, right? Just to say thank you for the work that, that, that they've done in the communities, in their communities, for the people, and just been that institution that have stood in the gap. That's one thing that we did. One of the other things that the council member does on a quarterly basis is he hosts a clergy, like a clergy breakfast. This is held in the district. And one of the reasons why this is important is because, one, it allows the count, the community, the church community to understand and know what the councilman's doing, right? It's for them to see, hey, here's what, here's what he's doing in the district. Here's what he's doing. And then it's also an opportunity for folks to, to build or to build community and for them to know each other. Right. One of the things that I think is unique about South LA is that there's churches everywhere on every corner. Right. And so one of the things that the councilman wanted to make sure happens is that there's this built community that, you know, who's down the street, you know, uh, the church that's two streets away. And so it's building that community, but it's also having a space where um, they can collaborate. They can have discussion and talk about how can we support each other. I love that. I mean, I'm saying I love that like I'm not a part of the work, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right, right, right. But I, I, I love it because I think sometimes people take for granted the important work that many of these faith based institutions are doing. Absolutely. And like you said, standing in the gap. Right. Yeah. Because there are some areas that e- that government can't even reach That's necessarily right. hit on or some areas that we're still working to get better on. Mm-hmm. And so as we're working to get better in these areas, we still have many of these faith based institutions that are, like you said, filling in the gap. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. I'm also I was also thinking about one of the ways that our churches have supported so many people is by being a space to learn performing arts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm bringing that up because I want to talk a little bit about you just for a, a brief second. <laughs> sure, sure. So we want people to get to know our deputies and the staff that here. You actually are a musician and you learn music where? In the church. I was groomed <laughs> in the black church. So thanks for asking that. Yes. Yeah, so my father, as I mentioned before, he was a pastor. He is a pastor. We used to have a church on 54th and Western and we moved to Compton a couple of years ago. But we spent a good majority of my childhood in South LA, in CD8, off of 54th and Western. And so I remember I started playing piano and sort of singing at around age maybe 13, 14. No formal musical training, but the church groomed me in terms of the musical aspect of, you know, the church. And so uh, I've been doing that ever since. It's been over, what, maybe 15 or so years since I've been doing that. So I'm very familiar with the culture of church. I'm very familiar with the performing arts thing. One of the things that I love about the church is that it, as you mentioned, it does sort of create that space for young people to learn how to play an instrument, how to sing. And then, you know, I was just talking to the council member not so long ago about the fact that what's really interesting about the church is like you can learn music in the church and then that will allow you to be an extremely, how do you say, like a musician that knows is like, it's very flexible, right? And so if you go out into the classical world, you go out into the jazz world or hip hop, the church does a good job at grooming musicians to where you can play anywhere with anybody at any time. In fact, you got to be ready to be able to hop on that. You got to be ready to hop on that. Yeah, you know, and there's been so many instances where my dad had to preach somewhere and either perhaps they didn't have a musician. I was there, so I I hopped right on there. I I clicked that Leslie on and, you know, I started playing. But I think that's one of the benefits of being involved in in, in the church as I was. At any point, I can forgot to hop on drums, forgot to hop on the organ or the piano. I can do that. Awesome. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing 
the work that we do to support the faith-based institutions in our district and in the city, as well as sharing a little bit about yourself so people can understand why Mm -hmm. you are the faith deputy. Sure. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. I'm your producer, Siobhan Taylor. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow MHDCD8 on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.